Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. So we are uh, continuing in our series uh, through the book of Revelation this morning. But before we jump in today, I actually want to start by doing a little bit of cleanup from last week. Uh, I made several statements last week about uh, America being uh, the beast out of the land and uh, this, the upcoming politicians in our next election being either the Antichrist or a, a messianic figure. And just to be clear, um, those were statements or interpretations that we were critiquing, okay? So I had a few people come up to me afterward and say, do you really think, like, the Antichrist is going to run in the next election? And, like, do you really think America's the beast out of the land? And I thought, oh, no. Okay, so let's, let's clear that up. Um, we actually don't buy into those views. We were mentioning those to demonstrate some of the unhealthy interpretations of Revelation and some unhealthy approaches to modern-day politics. Uh, But I wanted to clarify that before we move on. Uh, And if you weren't here last week, and all of this just sounds completely bizarre, uh, then this is all just a teaser aimed at getting you to go back and listen to the podcast or something. Uh, For today, uh, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 6, uh, verse 1. And we'll pick up there in a bit. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, we are waist deep in what is likely the most confusing and controversial book in the Bible. And if you're new to the Bible or you've missed the first half of the series, Revelation is the last book in your Bibles. And it's unique from all the other books in your Bible because uh, it actually qualifies as three different genres or categories of literature all at the same time. So if you were here earlier in the series, some of this language might sound familiar. But Revelation is a letter written to real people in real first century churches. It's a prophecy designed to challenge and encourage God's people in their trials, and it's apocalyptic literature, which pulls back the curtain on reality, unveiling the spiritual reality which sits behind their present and future circumstances. If you break down this uh, very confusing book of Revelation into four basic movements, it would look something like this. Chapters 1 through 3, John receives seven messages to seven real churches in Asia Minor, and he sees the glorified Jesus walking among the churches, speaking to them by the power of the Spirit. In chapters 4 and 5, we see the centering vision of the book of Revelation. John sees in, is ushered into the heavenly realms where The creator God and the lamb who was slain are being worshipped on the throne of heaven. Everything else in Revelation emanates from that and and only makes sense because of that. Then you get to chapters 6 through 19, which is the bulk of the book. 
And this is where things tend to get confusing. John witnesses a very intense series of events as a special scroll is opened. Seven seals are broken, seven trumpets are sounded, and seven bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth, but specifically aimed at a beast and Babylon. Then you get to the final or concluding chapters of the book of Revelation, where God brings a final act of judgment and renewal, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. And as I pointed out um, last week, if you break it down into four sections, these first two sections are not particularly controversial. Uh, The message to the seven churches, God being worshipped on the throne of heaven, uh, there's not a ton of debate about that. They are uh, stunning but they're relatively straightforward. The last section, which pictures God's final act of judgment on evil and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth, again, is stunning. It should stir something in us, but it isn't particularly controversial. What confuses us when it comes to the last book of the Bible is chapters 6 through 19 which is what I'll attempt to sum up this morning. Starting in chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. This is the start of a series of sequences of sevens that will span 14 chapters of Scripture. And so what I want to do this morning, rather than attempt or even remotely attempt to read 14 chapters of Scripture... Uh, What I want to do is walk through this together and attempt to get kind of a bird's eye view of what's going on in this section. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, I watched as the Lamb, or Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals. In chapters 4 through 5, if you were here when we studied those, you'll remember that the Creator God had this seal in his, or this scroll in his hand with seven seals on it. And it's believed to be the message or the means by which God's kingdom will come in full to the earth. Uh, How will God's kingdom come in full? Well, first, the evil within the world must be done away with, and the people of God must be saved from within this world by the blood of the Lamb. This verse at the start of chapter 6 is almost like a, a starting pistol going off at the beginning of a race. And from this moment forward, we are off and running. The lamb begins breaking seals. Six seals are broken, each one releasing some kind of judgment or disaster. But then things really begin to spiral and become increasingly confusing. So this is an overview of these 14 chapters. Six seals are broken, but out of the seventh seal we get seven trumpets. And then you get six symbol, or seven symbols or visions, but within the seventh trumpet, you get seven bowls of wrath which are poured out on the earth. And if all of this feels unbearably confusing, welcome to the club. From start to finish, uh, this is intense and spiraling series of judgments spans 14 chapters of the book of Revelation, and this is the general pattern that it follows. Next slide. Uh, Six seals are broken. 
Uh, and eventually seven seals are broken, culminating in what the prophets called the day of the Lord. But out of the seventh seal, you get six trumpets, eventually culminating in a seventh trumpet and the day of the Lord. Along with that, you get seven signs, which is most of what we've been studying the last few weeks, culminating in the day of the Lord. And out of the seventh trumpet, you get seven bowls, again culminating in, you guessed it, the day of the Lord. And at this point, the debates are too numerous to even mention. Some people think that these chapters and series of sevens are depicting a literal sequence of events which either happened in the past with the Roman Empire or are happening in the present in our day and age or perhaps will happen in the future. So they'll try to map out this uh, sort of linear sequence of wars and earthquakes and lunar eclipses and events that should unfold just the way these chapters seem to portray. Um, Other scholars think that these series are describing the same story in different ways, using different sets of symbolic imagery. And they would point out, hey, that's why they all culminate in the day of the Lord or this final act of God against evil. Some people Uh, think that all of these events will happen at the very end of the age. Others believe they're actually describing the entire period of time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension in year 30 or whatever, and all the way to the very end of the age when he returns. No matter how you answer those questions or how you attempt to navigate through those chapters, uh, it's clear that each set seems to almost be hidden within the set before it, uh, and they actually intensify as they go. So each one is pictured as affecting a greater percentage of the earth, all of them moving toward that final goal. In terms of their content, each one of these series is loaded with Old Testament imagery regarding judgment. And you can trace not all, but almost all of the, of, of the judgments that are mentioned in these series can almost all be traced back to the Exodus near the beginning of the Bible, which if you're familiar with your Bibles, it's this moment when Israel is freed from slavery uh, in Egypt and brought out to be their own people group, brought into uh, the promised land. And so as you're reading through, you're going to be reading these about these images of hail and blood and poisoned water and locusts and fire and darkness. And all of them find their roots in this imagery of Exodus. They're borrowing from that event. Uh, but no matter how you cut it, 14 chapters later, we are left with more uh, questions than answers. Is all of this literal, or is it symbolic of something else? Are they portraying events that happened in the past with the Roman Empire, or in the present with us in, in modern news headlines, or are we waiting for all of it to happen in 
the future? Are they telling the same story from multiple angles? Or is it one sort of a compounding sequence of events? And the answer to most of those questions is I don't know. I'm not sure. Most scholars and theologians that you'll read will have a guess one direction or another. Uh, Most of the scholars that I've read seem to think that it's the same story from different angles and that as a result, these uh, judgments shouldn't be taken strictly literally, but rather they are symbolic of the fact that God's judgment will come in full against the beasts and Babylons of this world. In fact, uh, most scholars point out that this is the significance of all of the sevens. So remember, if you were here with us from the beginning of the series, that in apocalyptic literature, a seven represents completion or fullness, and it's often associated with divinity. And so scholars would point out that all of these confusing series of sevens are actually communicating something in apocalyptic literature. The message is that God's absolute, complete, and total divine judgment will come against the evil of this world, uh, pictured here as the beast and Babylon. And if you're new to Scripture or you're just joining us for this series, uh, the beast is sort of a stock biblical imagery for empire, especially evil empire. And Babylon is stock biblical imagery for corporate rebellion against God. Babylon is, throughout Scripture, a symbol of the self-centered, self-glorifying city. There's a broad sense in which Babylon is sort of representative of the world and its ways. And and if we see those as images that are being used throughout Scripture, but really driven home in the book of Revelation, then then it should be clear enough that as long as there is a Satan, a great enemy of God, alive and at work in the world, there will be beasts, and there will be Babylons. The point of Revelation is that these beasts and these Babylons must be resisted at all costs. The people of God must remain faithful witnesses in the midst of an evil age. There will always be beasts, There will always be Babylons in this age. But do not give your allegiance to them. Do not take part in their patterns of sin. Stand firm to the end, giving allegiance to the Lamb who was slain, witnessing about the sacrificial death of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, and you will be 
victorious. One day you will stand in the new heavens and the new earth. The beasts and Babylons of the day will seem as if they've won. They will seem to have escaped judgment, but true victory actually belongs to the faithful witness, to those who follow Jesus to the death. For the fate of Babylon is already sealed. It will be destroyed. This was the ultimate message that Revelation communicated to the early church. It gave them a vision, insight, strength, uh, counter-images, inspiration to resist Babylon to the death. It pulled back the curtain, revealing to the people of God that Babylon will fall. In fact, if you uh, turn in your Bibles to the end of this crazy sequence, uh, chapters 18 and 19, you actually get to witness the dramatic fall of Babylon. This comes at the end of all of these series of sevens. In fact, uh, we won't have time to read it, but these are just, I know we invented the chapter headings, but these are just the chapter headings from uh, 18 and 19, a, a way of trying to summarize what's happening in these chapters. Lament over Babylon's fall, warning to escape Babylon's judgment or to come out of her as the people of God, a threefold woe over Babylon's fall, uh, a threefold hallelujah over Babylon's fall, and finally the heavenly warrior or Jesus defeats the beast. The final chapters of this narrative, as uh, the last bowl is being poured out, reveal the end game. Babylon will fall. The beast will be destroyed. So don't yield to their demands. Don't join in their sin. That ship is destined to sink, and all who have joined themselves to it will go down with the ship. Babylon will fall. Therefore, God says, Remain faithful witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection, even if the empires of the world threaten you with death. And as part of that witness, you are to, quote, come out of Babylon. You are to remove yourself from the broken and sinful practices that exist all around you. That was the call of Revelation on the original audience, and that remains the call on any reader of Revelation today. So, to bring this home as we close, what does this look like in our context? Uh, what does it mean for us to come out of Babylon as we step into 2020 in Spokane, Washington? A few thoughts as we close. Uh, the first is that we refuse to deify 
our country, our politicians, or our political parties and structures. We do not give them divine status in any sense of the word. We reject the ideology that life is about me and my self-fulfillment and self-actualization. That's actually not what the scriptures say. We reject consumerism, materialism, and fast fashion, especially that which is built on exploitation or slave labor. Uh, And I'll just say, if that idea was new to you as of last week, a simple documentary that I would recommend is called The True Cost, and it kind of brings you up to speed on the relationship between the things that we buy at the store, the place our dollars go, and the well-being of millions of less fortunate people around the world. Uh, But the short version is that we refuse to grow rich or save money on the backs of slaves. Next, uh, we reject corrupt economic practices in whatever sector we find ourselves. These exist in some form in almost every sector and institution and job. No matter where you work or what you do, odds are there will be pressure at some point to cut corners, to lie about your hours, to overcharge the customer, whatever it might be in your context. Uh, Next slide. We reject the sexual ethic of our day and all of the practices that accompany it. We reject individualism and receive God's call to community. We reject the self-glorifying aspect of social media culture and receive God's call to die to ourselves. And obviously, we could go on and on and on. But this is a snapshot of what it means to come out of Babylon, to disassociate ourselves with the patterns and practices of empire and worldly living and worldly thinking. In short, Revelation is a call to be in the world, but not of the world. To operate within the borders of Babylon as ambassadors of the kingdom and as citizens of heaven. And so we are called, as followers of Jesus, to identify and uproot all of the practices of the world, all of the elements of Babylon, which we find in our own lives and which we're tempted to conform to. The book of Revelation was hugely important to the early church because they were being threatened on the one hand and tempted on the other. They were threatened to give up their faith and their witness, and at the same time, they were tempted by the ideologies of their day. And many of them were caving. If you go back to the beginning and read the seven messages to the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation, many of them were compromising. 
Revelation was not written as a warning to Babylon. It was written as a warning to the church. Don't give in. Don't give your allegiance over to them. Don't worship what they worship. Whether it's sex or politicians or empire or wealth or anything else. Don't buy into the ideologies of the day. Don't compromise. Don't bind yourself to that ship because Babylon will fall. This is chapter 18, verse 4. The words of John. He says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So first, the message was to come out of Babylon, to be in the world, but not of it, to disassociate yourself with the Babylonian practices you see in the world around you. And finally, the overwhelming message of the book of Revelation is to remain faithful in your witness. From start to finish, Revelation is a book about witness. In fact, in the opening lines, in the first paragraphs, we are introduced to Jesus as, quote, the true and faithful witness. And every single message to the seven churches ends with a call to, quote, be victorious. Stand firm until the end. Remain true and faithful in your witness to Jesus' death and resurrection, and you will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't face the same type of resistance that the early church was facing. But I think that many of us are just as tempted to give up our faith, to compromise, to walk away. In 2010, I moved down to Portland, Oregon, uh, to start law school at a little place called Lewis and Clark College. And uh, the year that I enrolled, they did a nationwide study that ranked Lewis and Clark the most godless school in America. Portland, uh, as many of you know, is a, is a very secular, progressive city, uh, but our school was even more so. It was a hostile environment. And there were tons of, of wonderful and well-meaning people who went there, but you could sense the overwhelming anti-Christian attitude of that place. And Christians were never um, physically threatened or persecuted that I know of. 
But that's because they had better weapons at their disposal. It was the social pressure. It was the deep sense of shame. You see, the general belief for a long time in this country uh, was that being a Christian made you a more moral person. So the joke historically was, oh, I couldn't go to church. I'm not what? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not moral enough. The altar would catch fire or or whatever the joke was. Uh, Fast forward a few dizzying decades, and the ground has shifted under our feet. It is now the exact opposite. Oh, you're a Christian. That makes you less moral. I won't go to church because I'm better than that. I am more moral. I am too moral. I have a a secular, progressive vision for the future that is better than your vision. I am free from the shackles of religion. And, And so we were looked down on for being Christians because we were being immoral, bigoted, outdated, closed-minded, foolish. Oh, you're a Christian? I bet you believe there's a difference between men and women, don't you? I, I, I bet you're homophobic. I bet you believe and repressing your sexuality until marriage. You dirty repressor, you. I bet you would deny a woman rights to her own body. I bet you believe in that sexist, racist, outdated book called the Bible, don't you? You know that we've proved that wrong, right? You know the Bible's not true. Oh, you believe in God? Wow, pass the Kool-Aid. You are the very last thing we need. You are the problem. It, It wasn't physical persecution. It was the glares, it was the insults, it was the anti-religious rallies, it was the general sense of shame that was placed on being a Christian. And as a result, there were very few witnesses. Anyone who showed up to that environment being culturally Christian or weak in their faith, gave it up. The pressure was too immense. They walked away. They refused to identify as being Christian. And some probably gave up their faith completely, but others just stayed in the shadows. 
unwilling to be recognized, unwilling to face confrontation, unwilling to face the shame. I will simply give my allegiance to the secular, progressive vision of utopia. And I'll wave their flags, and I'll, I'll sport their bumper stickers, and I'll march in their rallies so that I can avoid the shame. They didn't want it. The insults, the, the shame, the glares, being marginalized, being judged and misunderstood. In many ways, that cut deeper than physical persecution ever could. To be framed as immoral and bigoted in a place that lifted up morality and free thinking. To be framed as the problem. It was disorienting. And the reason that I mention all of this is that it seems to be a snapshot of where Western culture is headed. By all measurable signs, we are increasingly post-Christian. And Portland is out ahead of the curve, and Lewis and Clark was perhaps out ahead of that curve. But in all reality... Coulter's experience at Eastern in 2019 isn't that much different than my experience at Lewis and Clark a decade earlier. To witness comes with a cost. For us in this country, it is not financial or physical, it's social psychological, it's emotional, it's spiritual. But it's a cost nonetheless. And a shocking percentage of nominal Christians all across the country are simply walking away from their faith, conforming to the patterns of the world, binding themselves to Babylon, compromising and giving in. They are challenged on the one hand and tempted on the other. So they cave. The message of Revelation is a challenging call to love God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your Babylonian neighbor as yourself. It's a call to remain faithful to Jesus despite the intense pressures of the world that we live in. That's it. All the dragons and beasts and marks of the beasts and bowls and trumpets and plagues and seals are meant to encourage us in one direction. Remain faithful to Jesus 
in the midst of Babylon because Babylon will fall. We'll end with this. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says it this way. Revelation is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon and it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. In the meantime, while we, as we wait for that, remain faithful to him. Let's pray.